If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 307. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, who's in the crowd? Oh, uh, Dave and Jen is in the newsroom. Erskine booking the guest. Matt Taylor on the board. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson to 900 CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. You can talk. You can text 905-645-3221. Don't forget Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Your chance to win your way to see Forge FC at Tim Hortons Field. Uh, playing the MC Hammer today. It was on this day in 1990. 1990. Uh, MC Hammer's third album. <laughs> he had three. <laughs> I know. Hard to believe. Uh, MC Hammer's third album, uh, Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him, started a record-breaking, are you ready? Record-breaking 21-week uh, stay atop the North American album charts, making it the longest uninterrupted stay at the top since the album charts started. There you go. On this day in 1990, MC Hammers can't touch it. All right. Uh, jump into the fun. As I said, love to hear from you. Phone line's always open, 905-645-3221. Uh, you can talk. You can text. You can leave us a last word. Send me a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Lots going on today. Uh, still the big story are uh, the, uh, the, uh, the wildfires that continue. As you can tell outside, it's not near as bad as it was. And... Uh, Rain and such in and around the area, obviously uh, helping. And uh, we need breezes and we need wind direction to change and uh, and some more rain to uh, obviously uh, nip this problem in the bud. Uh, the other big news, the unemployment rate uh, sneaking up today. We'll talk about this coming up a little later on. 5.2% up from 5%. Uh, wages up 5.1%. Oh, man. Who's it? Who are they talking about there? Uh, so we'll talk about that coming up over the course of uh, the afternoon. Writer strike still keeping uh, TV land uh, dark at this point. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on this hour. The Globe and Mail has launched a new Freedom of Information project. We'll get details on that and how you can find out information as well. Uh, we'll touch on the Russia-Ukraine uh, invasion that has continued, Russia invasion of Ukraine, and Russian elites now getting weary of war and uh Patience for Putin is running thin. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on this hour as well. Canadian Civil uh, Civil Liberties Association characterizing uh, drones and such as invasive technology. We'll venture back into that discussion. And as I mentioned, the unemployment rate ticked up in May for the first time in nine months, uh, sitting at 5.2%, still traditionally historically low. Uh, Ian Lee is going to join us on that to talk about. Also, Swoop. Uh, Swoop Airlines uh, going to be shuttered by WestJet by the end of the year. We'll talk about that and how it affects flights in and around our area as well. Uh, Canada's former National Security and Intelligence Advisor, advisor telling MPs that uh, leaking sensitive intelligence information uh, is dangerous, and these people are not heroes as it put lives it puts lives at risk. Uh, all the more reason to get to the bottom of all of this with a nice public inquiry. But I digress, and. Uh, uh, former U.S. Donald Trump. Yeah, remember him? 
uh, facing 37 felony charges uh, relating to uh, mishandling of information as he exited the White House. You remember all of that. Uh, you know, you got to ask yourself at what point uh, Americans grow tired of uh, Donald Trump and all of the baggage that he brings. And as I mentioned uh, many times, and, you know, you could say it in this country as well, is this the best we can do? Of all the people out there, the bright uh, young women and men that are out there, is this the best? Is this the best we can do? Can't find anybody better than this. And again, you know that could be said for both countries. So uh, something to think about as um, we progress through the show. All right, another uh, story which we were talking about yesterday when we had PJ Marcanti on talking in and about uh, the Ren- the Renos at First Ontario Centre and such. And uh, information coming out that uh, the relocation of the Salvation Army, which, of course, is news to them at this point. We're going to talk about that coming up uh, a little later on as well. Uh, but when you think about it, this entertainment precinct, which obviously is the block that involves uh, First Ontario and, and, and the theater and such, uh, all going to be in the process of being revamped. Uh, across the road is the Sally Ann. Does it fit with what is going on? Uh, you can see where that's going to go. So anyway, the head of the First Ontario Centre um, uh, said, and this was PJ yesterday, said that they hope to work collaboratively, uh, collaboratively with the Salvation Army on a, a possible relocation of the shelter. Again, news to them, but they say it's totally up to them. It's their property. But the building's been there for quite a while. And, you know, could they do better with a better building in a different location, which is not across the road from a uh, an entertainment precinct? Uh, again, you don't want to make this look like you're shoveling or, or shoving people that are less fortunate off to the sidelines and such. But, you know, again, I remember this very visibly uh, back in, I guess it would have been um, the early 1990s, 1990, in and around there, when I first came to Hamilton. And Hamilton was a very much different place it was not thriving at all quite the opposite it was bleeding and it seemed that uh, you know the government's answer to all of this was bringing more and more services into the downtown core which greatly greatly changed the complexion of the downtown core and we can see certainly in the last 5 10 15 years how that has changed yet again so is there something that not can, that can be done here that satisfies both sides uh, and both parties in this in in, uh, getting a brand new facility for the Salvation Army and 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 allowing this piece of, of real estate, uh, this piece of property across from the entertainment uh, precinct to be better used, suiting the entertainment precinct, which is what you're trying to build here. So uh, you can see how this is being a, a sensitive situation. And uh, at this point, it's all in the chatter stage. And we're going to find out a little bit more later on. As I said, we talked to uh, PJ Candy yesterday, CEO of Carmen's Group, about all of this. And again, he reiterated, as we played on the news, uh, this is up to them and what they decide to do, but this could very well be an opportunity for both parties here, uh, not only to get a better, a better suited and a newer, up-to-date facility for the Salvation Army, um, but also uh, really add to the vibrancy of the entertainment precinct and what it could become. And obviously, if you're doing a brand new reno uh, at uh, at First Ontario Center, the, the the properties that are adjacent to it, across the road, uh, Kitty Corner too, are incredibly valuable and could go a long way 
way in the refurbishment of that uh, entertainment precinct. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that discussion develops. We'll be following it, talking about it a little bit more. It is 3.20. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text. Leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Uh, you know, there's a writer's strike on it. It's been going on for over 40 days now. Uh, and, and normally when this happens, it, it really changes things. But it, it changes things in, in what we watch, at least it did in the traditional days of TV. Is it different now? Uh, what is the same? Let's bring in Robert Thompson, trustee, professor of television, radio, and film, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture, Syracuse University. Robert Thompson is with us now. Now, Robert, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. I hope you are, too. So far, so good. Thanks. Uh, what's different now? Uh, and, and who is on strike? Is this everybody, whether you're writing for a streaming service or traditional TV, what have you? Who is on strike? Yeah, well, basically, it's the uh, writers that we most of it is a writer we think of as traditional uh, 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 writers for scripted uh, programming. So reality TV is a different uh, uh, situation, even though there is some writing uh, done there. Um, and of course, the directors uh, had authorized to strike. It looks like they've settled. Their membership has to ratify by uh, the end of June, but that looks like that's going to be settled. So we're not going to have a one, two, three punch. But the third part of that, the actors uh, have, uh, in fact, uh, authorized their leadership to strike if they see fit, and they're currently uh, negotiating as well. So we could have actors join uh, the writers, but it looks like the directors won't. You had said that it's uh, different this time. There's a couple of things. Number one, this happened at the end of what we think of as a traditional season. So the old-fashioned broadcast shows and so forth, we don't re- we're not really noticing yet. Um, but there is, and, and the other thing is that the last time we had a strike, uh, 2007, eight, we didn't have all of this streaming that we could watch. So it's not like people are running out of things to watch. Hmm. However, the impact of this uh, is in many ways greater because there is so much more production now uh, than there was before that shutting that down is causing lots of impact, mostly or a lot in Southern California, but production goes on all over the place now, uh, Atlanta and uh um, uh, up in Canada and uh, lots of other places. Uh, and when that shuts down, it affects those locations uh, significantly. The longer it stays shut down, the more significant. So would this include the writers, the people that work on streaming services or produce stuff for streaming services as well? Would that all have come to a halt? Yes, uh, certainly, you know, sc- uh, scripted streaming right. services things as well. Yeah, and that, in fact, is part of the, is one of the big things that is being negotiated is streaming has so changed the nature of how television works, both the way in which it gets done, uh, writer's rooms, shorter seasons, all that kind of thing. Uh, uh, and that's part of what they're negotiating. Also, the way it makes money. In the old days, writers made a good chunk of their money when things went on to reruns, you know, from five mm. to seven o'clock when you'd see old episodes of Seinfeld or Friends or uh, whatever. Now uh, that money gets made in many different sort of ways thanks to streaming, and that's part of what they're uh, negotiating. I saw a headline that said uh, streaming caused this. Is that accurate? 
Well, insofar as streaming changed all kinds of things, and therefore uh, those things had to be negotiated in new contracts, I suppose you could say streaming had uh, a lot to do with it. Um, certainly technology overall, because AI is part of this uh, as well. So, yeah, I think the, the changes that have come over the last 15 years or so that includes streaming and uh, other technologies have made the old contracts a lot harder to renegotiate because so much stuff has changed. Uh, that was my next point, Robert. Uh, you were talking about how some of the sweeter deals for these uh, uh, writers came during the rerun days when those syndication uh, contracts were written and such. Do we need the same sort of thing set up for streaming then? Well, yeah, that's the thing is that streaming works in a different kind of way. Those, those syndication things is, uh, you know, the, the great money was made is if the show got over 100 episodes, that meant it could syndicate five days a week. Uh, and keep going without uh, repeating uh, a lot, then that's where the real money uh, was made. Now there are shorter seasons. Some uh, writers are complain- uh, uh, saying, though, that they, they do as much work for a shorter n- number of seasons, but you don't have as many episodes, so the formula of how much you get paid uh, when it goes into reruns. And, of course, the idea of syndicating on stations across the country is different than the idea of sitting in a streaming service like Netflix or Hulu Mm. or or whatever, and then simply counting the number of people who actually hit them. It sounds like this is no easy problem to solve, Robert. Where where do you see this going? No, it isn't. And I think that's one of the reasons we're now, uh, what, going on six weeks of doing this, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of progress uh, being made. Uh, Everybody knows, of course, because we keep talking about how the last one went 100 days. Back in 1988, uh, it went 153 days, which is the longest writer's strike that uh, uh, I remember. There was one almost that long way back in 1960. Um, but uh, And this, I think, is probably more complicated than any of those are because it's taking into account what they had to worry about in the last strike in 2007-2008. Uh, that was years before Netflix started making original programs, yeah. just to make a comparison. And, and as you said, like post-pandemic, everything's a new world now. Uh, so this isn't just a case of uh, as simple as somebody wants more money, pay them more money, give them this, give them that. We're looking for a whole new template here. That's that's really true. I mean, in the end, I suppose, it really is about more money. But sure. now it's how do you negotiate getting that uh, uh, money? Is it simply a raise of rates? Is it changing the formula for international uh, 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 money that comes in? Uh, it d- does it include parental leave? Does it include protecting that money by not allowing AI to come in? Um, I mean, in the end, it's probably really about the, uh, money, but it's not just uh, it's not just compensation. At what point do people does the rubber hit the road here? Like you said, there's so much content now; it'll take a while for everyone to burn through it. When does the rubber hit the road? Well, I suppose it's going to be when uh, when the programs people are looking forward to and like don't come back. But, of course, they're already getting used to that. You know, it used to be every September your shows came back. And if they didn't, people would wonder when. Uh, we've had over 20 years now of what the Sopranos would sometimes be. 21 months, I think it was the longest yeah. that it went before it uh, uh, came back. We've had to wait for a lot of series. But... Eventually, 
it's not like people are going to watch everything on Netflix or everything on Hulu. Um, mm. But eventually they're going to start feeling the fact that new stuff is going to not coming in and they're getting more and more international things. Uh, we're already noticing, of course, we noticed it immediately with late night. Late night shut down instantly because that yeah. stuff gets written uh, day of sometimes. And I think those are the places that really have to worry because if you get a whole population of people who simply take late night TV out of their equation, out of their habit, it might be harder to get them to come back again. Late night was already in kind of a transitional period anyway. And I think uh, I think if this strike goes on much longer, we may see some of the changes in late night television accelerated and not to late night's advantage. Robert Thompson with us, trustee, professor of television, radio, and film, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture, Syracuse University. Robert, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. It is 3.37. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Welcome to the fun. Jump into it. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. Talk, text, leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. We've uh, talked a lot of late, it seems, about information, uh, real, not so real, uh, as well, um, just the transparency in what has happened in the world, the divisiveness. And uh, an interesting uh, feature has been uh, started by the Globe and Mail. They've launched a new Freedom of Information project. It's a database of freedom of information requests and it also includes instructions on how to file a freedom of information request digs into the system how it works does this change things let's bring in jeffrey dvorkin senior fellow massey college former director of journalism at the university of toronto scarborough and author of trusting the news in a digital age jeff thanks for the time hope you're well i'm fine thanks scott nice to hear from you so I, from what my from my understanding of this, this came about a couple of reporters sitting around trying to get information, frustrated they can't get it, trying to find other avenues, and came up with this project. What are your thoughts? Uh, what do you think the objective is here? The objective is to make the information that is not available to the public more available and how to do it. I think this is a wonderful thing. It's not exactly a secret. I mean, there have been mm-hmm. a number of, uh, books that have been written about how to do this in Canada, but it's not easy. It's never been particularly easy. And when one asks for documents or access to information, it usually takes a long time. There is not a tradition of giving the public the information that they either want or need uh, in this country. We are a very closed and secretive place compared to the United States, where access to information happens uh, fairly quickly, because if it doesn't, uh, the courts will unleash their powers on you for not uh, for not surrendering or, or revealing that information. In Canada, we are a lot more of a closed society, and the government has always been, uh, well, why do you need to know this? Well, what is your purpose? Uh, and then they, they complicate it by charging a lot of money uh, to do a search. Mm. Uh, and that usually stops uh, smaller journalistic organizations from doing this. Why is this important now, today? I think the Internet has made uh, people more uh, questioning, more curious. Uh, they wonder 
uh, the public seems to wonder why things are the way they are. And one of the ways they can find this out is by getting access to government documents through access of information. Um, and the very fact that uh, these two reporters from the Globe have done this um, is a good first step. The problem is, is that government will, government will resist this. The bureaucracy is, uh, is not very user-friendly. It's not very democratic, to, to make a fine point. And I think that uh, any pressure that media organizations can put on uh, government organizations and the bureaucracy to make them more accountable is always a good thing. Now, uh, government has frequently said... Uh, we don't want frivolous requests, and that's why they're making it a little bit more difficult than perhaps it should be. But it, I, in my opinion, it's not up to the government to decide what's frivolous and what's not. Um, the public has a right to know. Does this add transparency, or will this just lead to more roadblocks? Uh, what would government reaction be to this? I think it depends on the issue. Um, for example, uh, if there are documents that indicate uh, to the extent to which the government of China has tried to influence members of parliament. This may be privileged information. It may be highly restrictive. Um, government will often say that this is not in the public interest uh, because it will affect uh, foreign policy, and they may try to stall it. But I think persistence is really the, the key ingredient, persistence and some some deep pockets to pay for the requests uh, that governments put in, in its place. Does stalling lead to uh, not only mistrust, but also speculation? And, and you know, with what we've seen with CSIS, it, does it lead to leaks? Well, that's, that's really the question. Uh, there will always be people inside government uh, who feel that they need to be more accountable. Um, and we've seen this in a number of cases. You may recall back in the 90s, the so-called Somalia affair, where a number of Canadian soldiers sent over to Somalia mm -hmm. uh, captured and murdered some teenagers who were trying to steal from their, uh, their camps. Um, and then they tried to cover it up. Well, there were, there were middle-rank officers in Ottawa who saw these reports and leaked them uh, to me at the CBC, my to, to the Ottawa Bureau when I, was, when I was in charge of it. And it was because they felt that the public really needed to know what was being done in their name. And so there will always be people who will be whistleblowers. I guess the question is, uh, what is their motivation? Should they be punished for, for leaking? Uh, or should they be honored and, and rewarded in some way? And every case is different. But the very fact that, the, that these reporters from the Globe are doing this, I think, is a very good step forward to making us a more accountable society. Is this going to make government more transparent? You talked about the U.S. and how it's a lot harder to, to put things under the rug there than it is uh, here. We certainly know what's going on with the election interference uh, committees and, and David Johnston and, and so on and so forth. What, where is this going, Jeff, in, in the sense that we've lost trust in a lot of these, or some have lost trust in a lot of these institutions and such? Uh, journalism is suffering here. Where, where do you see this going? Is this is this something like this uh, tapping into the transparency that is needed? I think it is, and I think that 
what will happen at certain levels of government will be that uh, various parts of government, whether they be elected officials or the bureaucracy, will say this information is too vital to reveal to the public, and they will find ways to try to block it. But uh, as I say, persistence counts, and uh, eventually these documents will come to light. All right, Jeffrey Dvorkin with the Senior Fellow, Massey College, former Director of Journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough and author of Trusting the News Media in a Digital Age. Jeff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Best. Uh, Globe and Mail launching a new Freedom of Information project. It's a database of Freedom of Information requests, and it also includes instructions on how to file Freedom of Information requests and digs into the system and how it works. When we're at a time where people want to know more, more information. It is 349. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900 CHML.com. Phone lines always open. 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text. You can leave us your last word. Hammerhead trivia coming up after the five o'clock news. Uh, Blue Jays have announced that, uh, they have sent Anthony Bass pitcher down to the minors. Uh, he was supposed to catch the ceremonial first pitch tonight. Uh, that obviously not happened and controversy with comments around the LGBTQ community earlier on in the week. Uh, Blue Jays have sent him to the minors. They have released him as a result of all of that. I'm sure we'll have more coming up at the top of the hour. Uh, we've been hearing more and uh, my goodness, we've been talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine far too long. Uh, initially, Russia thought this would take a few days and here we are. And, um, and, and at length, we've talked about how Russia is reacting to this, the citizenry. How long are they going to put up with this? We're now hearing talk that uh, Russia's elites, the money, the oligarchs are growing weary of all of this and uh, are starting to disagree with Putin's decisions. Let's bring in Arl Brown. Uh, sorry, Arl Brown, professor of international relations, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, and with us now. Arl, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. We have talked about this at length, Arl, about how Russia, Russians are reacting to all of this. And so far, uh, Putin has managed to keep the lid on it. Is this just wishful thinking from the West or are some of the elites in Russia trying uh, starting to get weary of all of this? It's difficult to tell. As you recall, I mentioned a number of times that dictatorships in Russia under Vladimir Putin is a dictatorship. Dictatorships tend to look very strong and stable until all of a sudden they're no longer strong and uh, stable. So it's hard to predict because the tipping point is often uh, very subtle and it comes from different kind of sources. Now, the oligarchs may indeed be unhappy. There is good reason for them to be unhappy. Their movements uh, abroad have been severely restricted. Their wealth, some of which had been transferred abroad as insurance, has been endangered but they do not have the capacity to remove Vladimir Putin. In the case of the military, they certainly have uh, a great deal of force, but there's not a history of the military itself removing the leadership. So uh, we have to see what's happening with the Siloviki, the secret services. And so far, there does not appear to be any breach in the support from the Siloviki with Vladimir Putin because they're very highly dependent on him. But it can change very quickly. And this is why we have to look at what is happening on the ground. We have to keep helping Ukraine. We have to make sure that Ukraine is given the tools to succeed on the ground. 
and that is the best insurance that we can have that Vladimir Putin is defeated, even if he's not removed. Uh, obviously, the elites, the oligarchs are concerned about their money. Are they losing it? Are they in, in fear of losing? Undoubtedly, they are in fear of losing it because there is no uh, independent system of law in Russia. There's no independent judiciary. So they know that whatever assets they have, uh, those assets are vulnerable to the whims of Vladimir Putin. You could be a powerful, wealthy oligarch one day and then uh, be prosecuted, jailed like Khodorkovsky was uh, on the orders of Vladimir Putin and the judicial system will offer you no protection. So what happened in Russia was that oligarchs moved uh, significant sums abroad and they worked under the belief that those funds would be safe, that if the situation really deteriorated inside Russia, they could flee and they would have those assets. Well, now, thanks to much more rigorous uh, actions, sanctions taken against Russia, those funds are not at least as secure as they were before, and the oligarchs know that. And also, since their movement is restricted, they cannot so easily flee and then access those funds. So undoubtedly, there is a great deal of concern, but that concern does not necessarily translate into an open revolt because as long as Vladimir Putin has the loyalty of the Siloviki, as long as he controls the military, the oligarchs uh, have uh, virtually no way of really removing Vladimir Putin. And uh, at the moment, Vladimir Putin still, still seems to operate on the basis that time is on his side, that the West will not sustain support for Ukraine, that he detects a tremendous amount of weakness in the Biden administration with good reason. He knows that the German chancellor has now provided many more armaments to Ukraine, but not anywhere close to what was uh, expected, and uh, particularly in rebuilding the German military, that has been very slow. Now, he probably is mistaken, and uh, we have seen that Vladimir Putin may have been a clever tactician on occasion, but he's no strategist. And obviously, there has been a huge strategic miscalculation on the part of Vladimir Putin, but he continues. So we have to see actually what happens on the ground. And now we see signs that the offensive by Ukraine may have started. There are at least three areas where they're pushing forth slowly. They're shaping the battlefield. They are prodding, probing, testing. And um, the, each side claims uh, some success. But these are early days. So we have to wait. And also we have to understand that in any military operation, if you look at uh, the Allied operation, the landing in uh, Europe uh, after D-Day, there are setbacks. And uh, there may well be setbacks for Ukraine. But if they can overall succeed, then uh, uh, Vladimir Putin could be defeated. And at that point, there may be all those other elements within uh, the power establishment in Russia, what is called the power vertical, that will come to the conclusion that not only has Vladimir Putin been uh, catastrophic and a tragedy for Ukraine, but actually he's a disaster for Russia as well. Uh, got less than a minute left here, Arl. Your thoughts on the dam destruction that we've seen? Do we know any more? Do we know anything more about what happened to it? There are new reports from Norway and uh, 
from some U.S. intelligence services leaked to the media that they uh, detected some kind of explosion. Uh, if there was an explosion, and particularly if the explosion took place in the power plant, then it's highly unlikely that Ukraine could have done it. It is uh, vastly more possible that it was Russia. It begs the question, why would they do it? Uh, and if that turns out to be the case, and again, it's if because we don't have all of the facts, it may have been partly miscalculation that they may have thought that they would have some kind of controlled explosion and wouldn't have devastation on this level because at the moment, even the Russians, uh, Russian forces uh, to the east of the Dnieper have suffered. Aro Brown with us, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of uh, Toronto, talking about the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and where we are at this point. Aro, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me on. Hey, look at this. No, really. What do you got there? Let me see that. Uh, good afternoon. It is 410. 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton today. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text. You can leave us a last word. You can join us one hour from now for Hamilton's favorite game show, Hammerhead Trivia, coming up after uh, the 5 o'clock news. Uh, Matt playing the MC Hammer on this day in 1990. MC Hammer released uh, released, uh, his third album, Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him. Uh, started, believe this or not, a record-breaking 21-week run atop the U.S. Uh, North American Billboard charts, making it the longest uninterrupted, uninterrupted stay at the top of the album charts since it started. Uh, there you go. On this day, 1990, MC Hammer, uh, number one album in North America. Stayed there 21 weeks. There you go. All right, a big show coming up, a big hour coming up. Hope you hang around for it and, uh, and join in. Feel free. Canadian Civil uh, Civil Liberty. Association uh, calling drones an invasive technology. Have you experienced this? Have you been lying out in your backyard uh, by the pool? <laughs> what have you? And uh, all of a sudden, someone, you know, am I allowed to do that? I'm not supposed to do that. Uh, and a lot of uh, chatter in and around various industries that are using it, including the police, which you can obviously see how it can help with whether it's search and rescue, whether it's accident investigation, this sort of thing. I'm uh, going to talk about that coming up uh, a little later on this hour. Also, Canada's unemployment rate ticked up in May for the first time in nine months uh, and still historically low. Obviously, Bank of Canada releasing, or sorry, uh, raising the interest rate uh, earlier on in the week, and now Stats Canada reporting that a uh, weaker summer hiring season for the youth drove Canada's unemployment rate uh, to 5.2 percent, up from five. Uh, that being said, again, still historically low. What does that mean? Also, chatter of a recession. Uh, but again, normally when that happens, the unemployment rates are a lot higher than than what they are uh, are right now. So we'll see how that pans out. Also, uh, remember lots of, of chatter about Swoop when it came on, Discount Airlines. Uh, many are surprised that Swoop is to be shuttered by WestJet at the end of this season. And we'll talk about that with Marvin Ryder coming up uh, a little later on. Also, uh, Canada's former National Security Advisor told MPs on Thursday that leaking sensitive intelligence information uh, is uh, potentially putting lives at risk. 
and something should be done about it. How about a public inquiry? Would not go a long way to helping all of this. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And boy, Donald Trump back in the news, uh, facing 37 felony charges relating to the mishandling of classified documents. You really have to wonder how, uh, in today's world, people just haven't moved on from this to, uh, Anyone else that's that's waiting in the wings? Anyone who, you know, wants to be a part of this? Uh, but fascinating. I guess we could say the same thing here, right? Uh, are you really voting for anybody or are you just voting to get rid of the other person? I don't know. That seems to be it's, it's, it's picking the best choice on a bad menu, I guess. Uh, and uh, locally, closer to home, uh, a lot of chatter. We had P.J. Marcani on yesterday, the CEO of Carmen's Group, and obviously uh, the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group, in which is renoing uh, the, I was going to say Cops Coliseum, First Ontario Centre, and that whole block, and, and quite, a, quite a big plan in store for the next couple of years, uh, as you've no doubt heard. But when you put all of that money into a entertainment precinct and a block like that, even the things that are across the road, kitty corner to you, all uh, uh, become a part of it simply through geography, simply through location. And if you look at that downtown core, I mean, you know, with the McMaster building there and, and, and what is going on in and around City Hall and such, I mean, that area of downtown is is greatly changing, and it's changing quickly. And I remember when I got here in uh, the early 1990s, and Hamilton was in a much different place, and a lot of social services were crowded into the downtown core in order uh, to help those that needed it and and to provide jobs and such. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves as we're, you know, rejigging, renoing a whole block in regard to entertainment, if it would be better for all parties if uh, they could, the Sally Ann could change location, perhaps move to a better facility, a more modern facility. Uh, those are the discussions that are going on, and uh, we'll continue and keep you abreast of all of that. It is 420. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. All request Friday edition of Hamilton Today. You want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite going in and out of segments? Give Matt a call, 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text. You can leave us your last word. And don't forget, Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Uh, you've no doubt heard about seeing drones in action. It's amazing how industry is using them nowadays and what they are being used for. However, a national agency that monitors civil liberties and human rights across Canada has put a call out to the Hamilton Police Service to suspend its drone program. Uh, it turns out that the Canadian Civil, uh, civil Liberties Association is characterizing this initiative as invasive technology that threatens the privacy of Hamiltonians, and there's no evidence of any consultation with the public or privacy commissioner ever happened. To talk more about all of this, Daniel uh, Konikoff, Interim Director of Privacy, Technology and Surveillance, and is with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I hope you're well, too, Scott. Thanks for having me. So, Daniel, my first question is here, are there rules that you're supposed to follow? We're talking about how there's no uh, no evidence that any consultation was done. Is there supposed to be consultation done, or should there be some sort of template or guidelines for this? So that's a great question, and truly one of the things that we're sort of passionate about at CCLA and that we uh, truly advocate for are some sort of more consistent legislation, right? There is, you know, no, this cuts both ways, right? It's not so much a requirement uh, for the police to be consulting the, you know, IPC or anything like that. Um, but the IPC can't really do anything if police don't consult them. So I think 
uh, one of the things that this uh, issue raises is, you know, having these sorts of tighter consultation regulations around uh, technology that does pose uh, a risk to privacy. Uh, would this be different in every single area? I mean, are some areas doing it better than, better than others? What do you mean by areas? Well, so cities, what have you, juris- yeah, jur- jurisdictions. I mean, it, it, are there any jurisdictions, any cities in Canada or even North America, for that matter, that have a handle on this? Yeah, absolutely. So police all over North America and all over the world, frankly, are sort of wrestling with how to integrate technology into their operations. And it is um, it, it is quite an issue, and there are a lot of growing pains around that. One of the uh, initiatives that I've been following quite a lot is the RCMP's National Technology Onboarding Program, which really sort of tries to take a more holistic approach to how technology is brought on board. They've got a very detailed mandate for privacy impact assessments and algorithmic impact assessments if they are using tools that require algorithms. Um, They've got stipulations about how the technology is going to be consulted on by the public. They've got these other sorts of precautions that they're trying to take around if you are going to use a technology that is potentially invasive, how are you going to evaluate that risk and how are you going to communicate with the public uh, about those risks? So um, this is something that I believe more police departments are sort of turning to, uh, and there's no one-size-fits-all solution, but uh, the RCMP's National Technology Onboarding Program is one example I can give of, of a program that's trying to more better regulate uh, to technology as it comes should, to Should there be something, Daniel, on a national level that provides this guideline for every industry to use, whether it's police or any sort of surveillance uh, industry that is using this? It, it, because it seems that it would be different. It would be like a piecemeal thing, depending upon mm-hmm. who you are. And and even for the uh, for reasons of legalities, you'd think that you'd want to have, uh, you know, one template for this. No, for sure. And I mean, that's also a, a really interesting debate that's happening right now as we sort of look at one of the new uh, pieces of legislation that's being brought uh, before Parliament. I believe it'll be brought before Parliament later on in the in the year, but regarding Bill C-27, um, which features a bit about privacy. Um, uh, but it's a, it's a new privacy regulation, but it also features new regulation around artificial intelligence and data. Uh, and one of the things that it, it features is you know, it hasn't quite been fleshed out yet, but one of the things that I think it'll sort of have to reckon with is how to regulate these different uses of technology in different sectors, because you're right, there is no one use of controversial or potentially invasive technology. It, it, it's an issue that spreads across sectors, uh, and it's something that uh, while there would have to be some sort of perhaps universal template that can apply to all of Canada, would be something that would then have to sort of be decided um, or take different shape, excuse me, according to different sectors. Daniel, there's cameras everywhere, whether it's in your phone, whether it's uh, mounted on a building, what have you. Do we have the same sort of thing for camera surveillance, for, for closed-circuit TV? That uh, is, a, is a really interesting question. And to be frank with you, it, it's, it's one of those questions about scale, right? Because um, I'm not, frank, to fr- frankly be sure, that there are different regulations, uh, at least in Ontario, around how CCTV uh, is sort of monitored. Um, I believe it would be in the Ontario Police Services Act. 
um, though don't hold me to that. Um, however, I do think that one of the issues that drones raise that make them different from uh, the cameras that are, are in your phone or any of the other sort of cameras that you might see um, around is that, you know, they're not fixed in place, right? They, they do have a right. sort of capacity to be um, anywhere uh, and they can sort of observe from a greater distance. Um, they also can collect a lot more information um, in by virtue of doing so because of how they can sort of hover and roam. Um, and I, I think that that's sort of the main differential that maybe sort of changes the way we look at cameras in public, which obviously yeah. you're, you're, you're thinking about it right, which is, you know, there are cameras everywhere, but one of the things that drones bring are they're sort of, there's, a, there's something more powerful to them. They're um, not following you. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they're not okay, so, following you. <laughs> I, yeah, I hear you. So um, obviously there are great advantages to this. We hear this from every industry, whether it's policing or surveillance, what have you, uh, natural resources. How do we make this technology work for us? Yeah, I mean, you're asking great questions here, Scott. I really appreciate it. And I think the, the current uses that the Hamilton police have outlined for drones um, some of them I, I do think are, you know, reasonable, right? Like for use and uses in searches and rescues, if you have to mm -hmm. cover uh, a large amount of terrain, there's a, you know, I know that there's lots of, uh, of forest or a lot of, you know, woodland area. Maybe you need to find someone in an area that might not be accessible to a person. I think, you know, so long as we were ensuring that there was restriction of use of drones to very specific contexts um, and that the public had greater assurances that they weren't being used in other potentially more concerning contexts, such as in monitoring large-scale events, um, protests, that sort of thing. Daniel Konikoff with us, Interim Director of Privacy, Technology, and Surveillance, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, questioning the use of drones, and should there be some sort of guidelines uh, template to make sure that rights are being uh, recognized. Daniel, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care, Scott. Have a good one. It is 437. It's an all-request Friday edition of Hamilton Today. You want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite? Call Matt, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. You can join us one half hour from now for Hamilton's favorite game show, Hammerhead Trivia. All right, we uh, remember talking about Swoop. This was going to be WestJet's uh, low-cost carrier, came in at, at 2017, and now uh, we're finding out that, in fact, um, WestJet is going to shutter uh, Swoop and fold it into its regular WestJet operations. Uh, Ian Lee is standing by. Canada's unemployment rate ticked up in May for the first time in nine months. Uh, forecasters say the Bank of Canada will have to see more of a softening in the economy before it takes a step back in uh, raising interest rates into the future. What does this mean? And this is still a very historically low interest rate uh, as you compare uh, decades, decades back. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well. The sun is actually coming out, and the uh, all the smoke is going away in uh, Ottawa and eastern Ontario. So life yeah. is good. I uh, hear it is getting a lot better out there, and that's uh, good yes. to hear. So uh, obviously, uh, Canada's unemployment rate been historically low for the longest time. Many have been talking about recession yeah. uh, and such, but usually when we see a or hear of a recession, unemployment rates are uh, higher than what we're seeing now. What does this say to you uh, from 5 to a 5.2? Is this a big deal? Um I'm going to say it's both, and I'm not trying to be on sitting on the fence. Let me explain that. Going from 5 to 5.2 is a trivial increase. So in that sense, no, it's not a big deal. 
In another sense, though, it is a big deal because it suggests that the trend uh, that the uh, Bank of Canada has been trying to achieve with eight, eight interest rate increases in just over a year are finally uh, biting, are finally impacting. Now, for those who are listening, saying, oh, my goodness, you know, it's going to skyrocket now, the unemployment. No, I don't believe that. And uh, so the econ- here's what I'm trying to say. The economy is cooling a little tiny bit. Um, and that's why the interest rate went up <laughs> yesterday. But the when and people say, well, how can any unemployment be good if a few thousand, 15,000 people lose their job? But we have to take this uh, look at the trend data, not only of unemployment, but we have to look at the job vacancy rate the job vacancies, which I just did. I looked it up just before I went on air with you. And this is, it, it's, a, it's a paradox. We have 5.2% unemployment. Everyone says, okay, yeah, it's very low, but it's still 5.2% of adult Canadians are unemployed. And yet I went to the vacancy, job vacancies. These are jobs that are not filled, that companies want to fill. And at the end, the data I've got is the end of quarter four, which is December 31st, 22, which is only five months ago, it was 855,000 people. I don't have the data right up to the minute because uh, StatScan hasn't released it. Um, so, you know, it's somewhere in the 800,000 range. So my point is you we have to be very, not to uh, panic, and overreact and say, oh my God, you know, the unemployment rate went up from 5% to 5.2. And I'm not suggesting it didn't. And I'm not suggesting the interest rates are not cooling the economy. I believe they are. Inflation has come down from 8% down to 4%. Unemployment is starting to tick up a little tiny bit, but I'm not worried about a recession because we have this massive overhang of job vacancies. Remember in in a recession, GDP collapses and unemployment typically goes through the roof. I I cannot uh, comprehend how unemployment can go through the roof when companies are looking for 800,000 people that they can't find. So obviously the Bank of Canada is raising these rates to try to slow things down. As you said, it's starting to bite. We're seeing that. So is it automatic that we should expect to see the unemployment rate go up as the start to bite more? marginally uh, uh, my i'm going to go out on a limb and uh, and remember i've lived through quite a few recessions all the way back to the 70s i lived through that massive recession in 1981 when yeah. interest rates hit 20 uh, 21 uh, 2021 and it was the worst recession since the great depression i wasn't of course around in the great depression uh, but i was certainly around in the uh, great recession of 881 and of course we had another one in 2008 9 I do not believe we're going to see anything remotely close to that. And the reason why it's not, this isn't being Pollyanna. I I keep making this argument, uh, Scott, as you know, from 19, and I just choose arbitrarily 1970 to 2020 was the boomer half century. And I'm a boomer. Uh, That was my and millions of me. That's, that was our time. That was the half century. It's over. We're no longer in the boomer half century. As governor, former Governor Polaz says, notes, two-thirds of the boomers have left the workforce, and the other, the last mm. third are right. going to be gone in the next five years. We're How much has that impacted Europe. this? 
Well, the point is, is that we're going to be in massive shortages for the next 50 years. Uh, the boomers and the Gen Xers and so forth are going to be looking at nothing but wall-to-wall -wall shortages. And so what I'm suggesting is, is that this is going to temper or mitigate against recessions because in recessions you go and lay off large numbers of people but if you are all desperate for workers it would be nuts mm. to lay people off in fact there's stories now in the states about companies that are the new word the new buzzword is labor hoarding labor <laughs> hoarding is where a company keeps people on the payroll even though demand has gone down because they don't want to lay them off because they know that they won't be able to get them back when the economy comes back so I don't, that's why I'm not worried about a deep recession uh, or any kind of negative, huge negative consequences, such as a very bad recession going forward, because we're no longer in the boomer half century. That is fascinating, Ian, because obviously my next question, why are the unemployment rates as low? Is it high demand post-pandemic and such? But you're pointing to uh, post-pandemic, it has sped up retirement of the boomer generation. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and I tell my students, you know, and they look at me like, you know, I said, you know, here's the good news. And I'm telling this every term to every student, uh, to every group. I tell them, for the, for the rest of your lives, you're going to have com companies all over the place, employers competing like crazy for you. And later mm -hmm. on, companies are going to be poaching workers from other companies. And and that's going to push up wages uh, somewhat. And And so that's the good news. I said, you're going to have nothing but choices and, and companies coming after you uh, because of these massive shortages predicted not just by Canada, predicted by the, by the OECD, predicted by every major forecasting agency in Western countries. Collapse of the birth rate is, partly to, uh, is a very significant factor in this. Right. I said, that's the good news. The bad news is you're going to be paying taxes like you've never, ever paid them before in your life because mm. your generation the younger generation are going to be supporting this yeah. massive number of boomers in retirement like me, although I'm not retired yet, because we consume much larger amounts of healthcare per person as you get older. And we're already seeing that in Canada. So the good news for all the young listeners is you're going to make fabulous amounts of money, but you're going to be paying fabulous taxes to look after me. Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, Canada's unemployment rate ticking up uh, a little bit, but nothing to worry about. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. It is 450. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. All requests, Friday edition of. You want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite? Call Matt, 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text. You can leave a last word. You can join us after the 5 o'clock news for Hammerhead Trivia. Budget airline swoop will shut down later this year and have its operations folded into WestJet. The company announced today the merger into WestJet's operations is expected to be complete by October 28th. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder is with us, professor to Groot School of Business, McMaster University, and here now. And I understand just got off a plane. Uh, Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Uh, on Wednesday, I got off the plane, so I was welcomed with this lovely thick air in Ontario. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, that'll be interesting uh, to see coming in. All right. What uh, WestJet's low-cost wing uh, started in 2017. What happened? What went wrong here? Well, actually, nothing went wrong, so to speak. Uh, you might remember almost a month ago that the pilots' union were about to go on strike. And so they were arguing over many things. One of those were wages. Uh, uh, and during the course of the negotiations, one of the things the pilots wanted 
was that everybody who worked for the company would earn the same wages. Now, uh, Swoop, the discount airline at uh, WestJet, pilots there were paid significantly less. Hmm. And the worker, the other pilot said, this isn't fair, this isn't right. We want everyone to be paid the same. The company blinked, they signed a deal, and today they announced that first the deal itself was ratified, but with that, the idea that all pilots would be paid the same. And that becomes a big problem when you're having an ultra low cost airline that was being able to, to succeed by keeping its costs low. Suddenly one of your costs were going to go up by 20, 30%. It just wasn't going to be possible. So we thought at the time this was going to lead to the end of swoop. We didn't put a date on it. Now they put a date on it on October 28th and we're going to say goodbye to that one carrier. So this is a direct result of the WestJet pilot strike and everybody wanting to be treated uh, even Steven? Or is this, you know, travel increasing and uh, WestJet realizing, you know, we can make more money off these planes if we <laughs> just increase them and make them like everybody else's? Well, that's a good, that's a good question, Scott. So, look, you're, you're arguing against someone who says we're only going to agree if everyone gets paid the same. And you're saying to yourself, okay, I make some money in a discount airline. I make more at full fares. What do mm. I do? Now, again, to give you a context here, Swoop accounts for 16 planes, one six, 16 planes of the fleet. The WestJet fleet is 180 planes. So Swoop was only 10% of the, of the traffic that they were carrying. It was obviously discount flights between major locations. And so I think when the company WestJet gave into this idea, it probably is a little bit of both. On one hand, they're upset to see that brand that they had invested in for five years come to an end. But then on the other hand, hmm, maybe we'll make a little more money now that everyone wants to fly. Today, they've announced that WestJet's going to stand behind good value pricing in flights. Don't quite know what that means. And so what I think they're saying is we're still going to try to give you good prices on flights but they won't be the ultra-low-cost fares that you had seen before. Yeah, that's interesting the way this is stated. Uh, we'll offer ultra-affordable travel options through a premium in-flight experience. It sounds like one will cancel uh, the other out. Is this good for WestJet in the sense that uh, business is growing, they need the planes, or will these sit idle? Could we see layoffs? So to, to answer that, can I just toss in one more variable for you? Uh, you might have forgotten that earlier this year, WestJet also announced that it had acquired a company called Sunwing. Sunwing. Mm. Now, that's a company that many people know as offering flights primarily during the winter months to charter destinations, whether that's in the Caribbean or Mexico or in the southern United States. Uh, Sunwing was not part of the negotiations with the pilots union. So one thing that keeps Sunwing afloat is they, too, have a lower cost structure. It raises the question that the next time the pilots union has a has a contract dispute, are they going to argue that the Sunwing pilots need to make more money? And what is the future of Sunwing? So it is possible that some of these swoop planes may be reassigned to Sunwing and they may expand that service a little bit while the others will be reassigned to WestJet. Uh, we're just not quite sure. Today's announcement was really short on details. How do other airlines that have various subsidiaries handle this? I mean, do they pay all the staff and pilots the same, or are they dealing with the same thing? Yeah, so the closest example you could get would might be Air Canada that has the Jazz service yeah. and uh, the, the Rouge service. Uh, 
and uh, they have not been able to keep pilots paid differently. They have paid other people and they offer a different set of amenities as it goes. The true discount airlines, <coughs> excuse me, a flare, for instance, links, Canada Jetlines, they do have a lower cost structure, but then they don't offer a premium service as well. So <coughs> this is a challenge for any major airline that wants to go down market into these low cost uh, discounted fares. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Swoop, uh, going to be folded into WestJet by the fall. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. Is 510 it is 900 chml i'm scott thompson it is hamilton today all request friday edition of you want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite call matt 905-645-3221 you can talk you can text you can leave us your last word you can play hammerhead trivia coming up moments from now uh, matt's been in the mc hammer reason being it was on this day in 1990 mc hammer's third album i know i didn't realize he had three uh please hammer don't hurt him Started a record-breaking 21-week stay atop the North American album charts, making it the longest uninterrupted stay, that's the caveat, uh, at the top since the album chart had started. The unfortunate thing, MC Hammer made just a swack of dough off of uh, this whole era and then um, uh, had some financial issues and, and lost a great portion of it. Uh, too many hangers on, I think, might have uh, had something to do with it. Uh, all right, feel free, jump in. Uh, love to hear from you. Uh, oh, let's play Hammerhead Trivia. Give something away. 905-645-3221. 905-645-3221. Hammerhead Trivia. Call now on the line. A pair of tickets to catch Forge FC versus Pacific FC Saturday, June 10th. Tim Hortons Field could be yours. 905-645-3221. Call us now. All right, this one's a good one. And uh, they're all good, aren't they? Huh? Stumping you? Uh, 1846. 1846. There were roads to many of the communities, stagecoaches, steamboats to Toronto, Queenston, and Niagara. This is all from the hammer. Cargo schooners here, 11 churches, stores of all types, four banks, tradesmen of all types, 65 taverns, three breweries, 10 importers of dry goods and groceries, tanneries, coachmakers, marble and stoneworks, all right here in the hammer. What happened in Hamilton on this day back in 1846? A, the city was incorporated as a city. B, the canal was officially opened. C, the Grand Trunk Railway arrived. D. Iverwin Stadium was built. If you got the answer, call us now, 905-645-3221, 905-645-3221. Who is on the phone? Eddie? Eddie, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. All right, it was back in 1846. Lots going on in the community, stores of all types, uh, churches, uh, businesses, stagecoaches, roads, but on this day, in 1846, what happened in the hammer? A, the city was incorporated. B, the canal officially opened. C, the Grand Trunk Railway arrived. D, Iverwin Stadium was built. I'll take C. C, the Grand Trunk Railway arrived. 
Incorrect. Yes. But thanks for trying. 905-645-3221. What's in the Grant Trunk Railway? I think it was actually the Great Western Railway. So there you go. you got to watch that stuff. Uh, 905-645-3221. Gary, how are you today? Doing good, Scott. How are you? So far, so good. 1846. Hamilton was on the build. Stagecoaches, steamboats to Toronto, Queenston, Niagara. Schooners delivering cargo, churches, stores of all types, banks, businesses, breweries, 65 taverns. What happened in Hamilton on this day back in 1846? A, incorporated as a city. B, the canal officially opened. C, the Grand Trunk Railway arrived. D, Iberwind Stadium was built. Well, I'm going to go with B. The canal officially opened. No! No! Thanks for trying. 905-645-3221. Sam, how are you today? Good, good. It's Sam. Sam. It's Sam? Sam, like Tarzan. Oh, Sam. Oh, I'm sorry. Sam, thanks for the time. Uh, What happened in Hamilton on this day in 1846? A, the city was incorporated. B, the canal was officially opened. C, the Grand Trunk Railway arrived. D, Iberwind Stadium was built. Uh, I don't know. D. I'll try D. It is never D. Iberwind <laughs> Stadium. No, it was long after that that Iberwind Stadium was built, the original Civic Stadium. All right, let's keep going. 905-645-3221. 905-645-3221. Tony, how are you today? Save us. What are you Good. doing? How are you doing? So far, so good. What happened in the city on this day back in 1846? A, the city was incorporated. B, the canal officially opened. C, the Grand Trunk Railway arrived. D, Iberwind Stadium was built. Uh, the city was incorporated. A. Absolutely correct. The city was incorporated. Happy birthday, Hamilton, named after George Hamilton, who originally bought the Duran Farm after the War of 1812, and the rest is history, as they say. Congratulations. You've won a pair of tickets to catch Forge FC versus Pacific FC coming up on Saturday, June 10th. Congratulations. All right. Thank you very much. Sounds like an all-request Friday edition of Hamilton Today to me. There you go, Eddie. You want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite? Call Matt, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. Feel free. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Of late, we've talked an awful lot about uh, CSIS and the leaks that are coming out of there and the conflict that appears between getting information from CSIS to the Prime Minister's office or vice versa. And then, of course, there's the whole David Johnston angle and everybody asking him to step down and call a public inquiry, meaning the majority of Parliament. And now today, Canada's former, uh, former National Security and Intelligence Advisor, advisor told MPs Thursday that uh, people leaking sensitive intelligent information are not heroes and are in fact potentially putting lives at risk. Do we have a difference of opinion within our organizations? Let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. As always, Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes. Good Friday afternoon, Scott. So we've all been often talked about the communications gap between CSIS and the Prime Minister's office. Is there a general feeling within CSIS or with even in with our within our intelligence community that everybody within CSIS and these communities are on the same page and that the gap is between them and the Prime Minister's office or vice versa rather than within these organizations themselves? Or is everybody within these organizations on the same page? So 
Inherently, I mean, CSIS doesn't provide advice, right? So these organizations have different functions. CSIS is just a collection and analysis agency. It doesn't provide options analyses to the prime minister. That's why we have the Office of the National Security and Intelligence Advisor, and that's why we have the Security and Intelligence Secretariat within the Privy Council Office, uh, which then parlays this into what does this mean for you, prime minister, and what are your options here? So I'm not sure that there's really uh, tensions within the community. What there are tensions, it appears, is with regards to particularly how to deal with China and China as a hostile authoritarian adversary that's looking to undermine our democratic institutions, our prosperity, our society, and and the like. Um, and in that regard, I mean, as I've argued, I mean, as as you know, I'm I'm no apologist for uh, how the government has handled this. I've called for public inquiry, but. In my uh, a Global Mail op-ed on the argument for public inquiry, which is that we haven't really had a thorough assessment of our system since 1981 at the McDonald inquiry, so that alone is a good argument. Uh, in that sort of, we we also uh, I think have to have to have to take into account the um, the challenges that uh, that um, that that inherently presents in terms of sort of some of the um, the transparency issues, and in a democracy. It's not just in Canada that intelligence agencies make assessments that in the end, the democratic government of the day either doesn't take up, doesn't action or doesn't action in the way that intelligence entities think it should be actioned. Ultimately, it's not the intelligence entities that are elected. It's the government of the day and it's the people of the country that uh, through democratic institutions get to make the decision of um, what the government of the day is and ultimately how it should handle these files. And Canadians will have an opportunity in the next election uh, in part to judge whether they think the government uh, handled this file appropriately or not. Uh, so what are your you know, anytime what... you leak, that is also a form of interference because ultimately you're undermining the government yeah. of the day and you're undermining the trustworthiness and the security of the country as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the avenue you would choose. Uh, Vi uh, Vincent Rigby was the National Security and Intelligence, uh, Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister from Jan 2020 to 2020, June 2021. What are your thoughts of what he had to say, uh, especially these people are not heroes who are leaking? Maybe heroes. Is heroes too strong a word? I mean, my goodness, they, they're obviously concerned. I'm not sure they're heroic, but I guess they are because they, they stand a chance of losing their job. Yeah, well, so I mean, I pointed this out in my op-ed, right? So, so the leakers here are going to at to extreme, like they're taking extreme and excessive risks. Um, uh, in the consequences would be quite severe for whoever is found out to have done this. And as I've speculated before publicly, I don't think the leaker comes from in, in CSIS. The leaker comes from somewhere sort of in the broader, likely PCO, NSIA or sort of community uh, in terms of these uh, these these reports. Um, so so it's but the silver lining here is that, you know, we also saw in that testimony the ignorance that MPs on all sides for all political parties have of our intelligence system, how the system works. And I think this shows more broadly how immature um, not just the government has been on the China file, on the national security file more broadly, uh, but also how immature most members of parliament are when it comes to national security and intelligence. And, you know, Vincent Rigby's sort of case for 
this is a file that needs much more attention and attention by experts. Like the fact that we don't have a cabinet committee that deals specifically with sort of these national security intelligence issues. The fact that repeated governments have resisted standing up a national security council to provide national security advice to the prime minister. The prime minister seeks all sorts of outside advice on all sorts of files, but um, multiple of our allies do this, where they have experts advise them uh, in the form of a council, but Canada has somehow always resisted that. And I think Vincent Rigby's argument is the world is changing. These are things you actually need to pay attention to because otherwise our democracy is going to be seriously put at risk. Uh, forgetting about, you know, forget about the issue of Chinese Communist Party election interference and such. Is this drawing more attention to as what you've just said as a whole and realize use the word immature that, that we've got to take a, a lot different look at this? We've got to use a different strategy here. Is that resonating with MPs? So we can only hope that that uh, is one of the silver linings of this conversation. But we're not alone here, right? So the problem is national security, intelligence, generally foreign affairs, defense, there's no votes to be had in these files. So this is why members of parliament in general don't pay attention to them and don't find them particularly interesting. And when there is opportunities, for instance, to get on the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, there's surprisingly little interest to actually sit on that committee because the electoral payoff is next to zero. Uh, so, um, so, so it's a challenging balance to strike in a democracy, um, but uh, this is precisely why other countries have cabinet committees. This is precisely why other countries have national security councils uh, to make up for that broader deficit in both expertise uh, among the political class and members of parliament um, and electoral interest and payoff. Is this really about national security? Because it would seem obvious, whether it's a vote getter or not, that this is what you have to do. Or is it that somebody's hiding something, Christian? Well, so I think it's both. It's decades of benign neglect that in Canada we sort of have this naive view that we're so far away from the world's problems. We don't really need to pay attention to this. And national security is sort of a discretionary, you know, it's a luxury that sort of we do when we want to, um, but uh, we don't have to do this. Uh, and, uh, you know, the world is changing. And I think Vincent Rigby's argument is, of course, that we need we, we need to be doing this. But certainly I think you know, whether there's a conspiracy in terms of people hiding something or not, I mean, what we see here is serious deficiencies within the system. And the way the Australians, for instance, resolve these deficiencies is by regular public judicial inquiries, some of them more public, mm. some of them less public. The most recent Richardson inquiry, 1800 pages of assessment of the intelligence community. It's resulted in a major restructuring of the community. Uh, you know, in Canada, it just seems nobody's interested in having having these conversations about are we postured for the 21st century? The Brits have seriously reformed their community. The Americans did after 9-11, the Australians have. We're the one country that sort of keeps sort of puttering along and sort of hopes that sort of things all kind of fall together. And Vincent Rigby's argument is that um, what we have is simply inadequate in terms of both the way the system functions or doesn't perform um, and uh, the way it, it, it makes sure that the right items get to political decision makers in a timely fashion. And this is powerful, of course, in Canada. We're not agile when it comes to key decision making processes on security, intelligence, defense and foreign affairs. Christian Leprec with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. It's been my pleasure and a great weekend to you as well, Scott. Thank you. 
It is 538. It's Hamilton Today. I'll request Friday edition of. You want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite? Call Matt, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Former U.S. President Donald Trump's at it again, facing 37 felony charges related to the mishandling of classified documents, according to an indictment unsealed Friday that alleges that he uh, described a Pentagon plan of attack and shared classified-related material uh, in a military operation. It goes on and goes on and goes on, 49 pages. To talk more about all of this, Brian J. Karam is with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and the Washington diplomat and host of Just Ask the Question podcast author of the book free the press the death of american journalism and how to revive it brian thanks for the time hope you're well doing well how about you my brother so far so good uh another one here here we go again uh is this going to trip up donald trump or is this just going to pat his pockets on the way to the next presidency well i i think it's it's if you read this indictment it is one of the most frightening documents i've ever read one of the most frightening indictments i've ever read in my life um, and it's uh, I, I don't even know where to begin. The fact that he held on to documents, the fact that he willingly held on to documents, knowingly lied about it, showed them to friends or the fact of the documents that he kept, including central CIA documents, Department of Defense documents, National Security Agency documents, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency documents, National Reconnaissance Office, the Department of Energy, and the Department of State and Bureau of Intelligence and Research. Those are the seven places that were the repository of information that he kept. And remember, he came out and said it was a put-up job. The FBI was setting him up. Then he said uh, it was a deep state thing. Then he said he, then he finally claimed that he had them, but said it was those were his to keep. So he's lied every step of the way. The DOJ finally called him on it, and they even use his own words against him. In August of 2016, Trump stated, in my administration, I'm going to enforce all laws concerning the protection of classified information. No one will be above the law. And then he goes on in September of that year to say, we can't have someone in the Oval Office who doesn't understand the meaning of the word confidential or classified. He will be hoisted by his own petard. He is, he, 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 you know, all he had to do was return him when they asked for him. It's the so fact what happened, what he kept. So what happens next, Brian? How does this affect his run for the presidency? Well, he'll still run. I've always maintained I don't think he'll be on the ballot come 2024 for reasons that, you know, only Donald Trump and God know right now. I mean, it, this will uh, be a, once it's disseminated. Once we get past the initial rhetoric of the unsealing of this and people read about it, I, they will distance themselves from Donald Trump, including Republicans who secretly can't stand him but publicly defend him. At this point, I would think that there will be excuses for people to run from him, and um, I don't see him on the ticket. He'll make his initial uh, appearance Tuesday. He probably won't spend any time in jail just like he didn't on the last charge. But it's going to be a very interesting and rough ride uh, from now until the end of November next year. Uh, My next question, you sort of touched on this. How do other Republican candidates position this? Do they stay away from them? Do they defend them? Do they use it against them? So far, the the candidates, the declared candidates, have supported him. That's what, honestly, 
you can't even you can't make it up. Uh, they all see money. They all see Donald Trump as the standard bearer. They know that he has a base that will support him. So they are going to support him because they want to get his base. Privately, I don't know of a Republican that likes the man. Privately, I don't know of a Republican that would invite him over to their house for dinner. Publicly, with all that money on the line and politicians being what they are, creatures of profit, uh, they are defending him. Uh, any candidates running for anything eventually are going to turn on each other and try to put their best foot forward. How can you uh, run for something against Donald Trump and keep supporting him? Man, that's the, if I had that answer, I, I'd retire <laughs> a happy man. Um, I don't think that anybody knows. It, I, how the hell do you do that? I mean, how do you how do you speak out of both sides of your mouth at the same time and hope to make sense? It it doesn't make sense. Uh, but none of this makes sense. I mean, the president of the United States is involved in conspiracy against the government that he ran. The president of the United States obstructed justice of the of the very government that he ran. How do you a house divided against itself cannot stand? How does this happen? If he's not prosecuted for us for it, it portends horrible things for not only the United States but for the world. Is it me or is he looking frail? He's not he looks a little worn out. He doesn't look as aggressive as he once did. Yeah, well, I never thought he was that you know that he looked that that that, that robust to begin with, but yeah, <laughs> I think this will have a toll on him and he set himself yeah. up for backing out of the race. Remember he said you know, months ago, I'm, I'm going to run, but if a doctor comes along and tells me I got to back out, I'll do that. So he may use that as an excuse to leave. But um, like I said, he no, I he, all of this, this is the second indictment that he's faced. The first one was about activity that occurred prior to him coming to office. This one is about activity that occurred after he left office. He still hasn't seen the indictments that are going to come about for what he did in office. So that's, I mean, this is just the beginning of Donald Trump's woes. Remember, Dr. Ronnie Jackson said that uh, in a in a briefing that I attended that Donald Trump was in such great health, he'd live to be 200. I doubt that that's true. But if it were true, I would venture to say that for the rest of his natural life, even if he lives to be 200, he's going to be wrapped up in court trying to defend himself. Very exhausting right. work. Can't make him look good. It has to be. But this guy is one perpetual court case. He's been in court all of his life fighting something or another. Has he not? Yeah. yeah. Brian J. Graham with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and the Washington Diplomat. Brian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Uh, you too, my brother. It's always a pleasure. Scott Radley joining us now, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, based on the singing, it wasn't just a bomb on Friday afternoon. It was after you'd already started drinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you, I tell you what, Scott, you don't have to go to the, what, what were you were saying there about the, uh, the, in, the sources? I've got the letter of David Johnson right in front of me here on the computer. And there are a couple things, we're going to talk about this early on my show, but there's a couple things in here that are really curious that he says in his resignation letter. Really Ooh. curious. Sure. One of them. Let me read. Let, now, I'm going to read this sentence and tell me what he is saying here because it sounds like it's the exact opposite of everything he said before. Uh, a deep 
and comprehensive review of foreign interference, its effects and how to prevent it, should be an urgent priority for your government and our parliament. What? So he's asking for a public inquiry? Well, no. So he's, well, he's saying, although I concluded that a public inquiry under the Inquiries Act would not be useful, he's saying this is a real priority. Well, that, that does not sound at all like the message mm. that was being given before. What was being given before, wow. regardless of how he worded it, sounded like he was saying, eh, not really that big. So that's one. The other one, later in the note, um, I encourage you to appoint a respected person with national ex- security experience to complete the work that I recommended in my first report. Listen to this. Ideally, here's a shot, you would consult with opposing parties to identify suitable candidates to lead this effort. Wow. Wow. So, like, wow. what's what's shocking about this to me is that for the first line about, it sounds like he's saying we do need some kind of real inquiry, so I'm mystified by that. And the second part almost sounds like a shot at the prime minister, although I'm sure it's not his intent, but it almost sounds like a shot saying, you know, maybe you put me in this untenable position by not consulting so that I, Mr. David Johnson, respected Canadian, ended up being seen as a political hack as opposed to an, uh, you know, an objective, you know, great guy to do this. So, but yeah, finishing your note with a line, uh, ideally you would consult with opposing parties to identify suitable candidates. What do you think the chances are that happens? Well, it has to now. I mean, come on. The, David Johnson has stepped down, and, and this was a very distinguished man, had a stellar reputation, and look where he is now. Yep. So, my goodness, I, does the Prime Minister have any other alternative than to call a public inquiry? And again, uh, you know, we're talking about national security, not partisanship here. So, uh, again, if he doesn't, it just looks really suspicious, like he's hiding something. Or maybe the Prime Minister's next. Who knows? <laughs> Well, no, look, I, as I say, this, I, I'm reading this note. I'm trying to, like, it's, it's longer than that. There's other things in there. I haven't read all yeah. of it. But uh, it, it just, it seems very puzzling to me that I know what he's saying, the, that an inquiry under the Inquiries Act in his mind was not going to help. But it sure sounds like he's calling for some kind of inquiry more than just the public hearings. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall in the meeting between Justin Trudeau and David Johnston discussing this very issue? At the beginning or now? All the way through. I mean, you know, obviously it's come to a head, and, and the guy can't, he, he feels he can't do it anymore. I mean, it, the, the, the response against him is overwhelming. Yeah, and, and, you know, we heard earlier in the week there was all this talk about how he had a hired navigator, the um, crisis. Yeah, they dumped them. Well, he got yes, rid of them. we know now why. Well, I think, pro- you know, like, again, we have no idea why, but I'm just, I'm, I'm, list- I'm reading through this, and I'm thinking, I wonder if the reason he got, we, he hired Navigator and then got rid of them was because they said, we only have one piece of advice, step down, step away yeah. from this. And so he said, thank you. I'll take your advice. I don't need your help anymore. Because that, like, it's just, again, on a Friday afternoon to do this uh, is typical um, yeah. of, of any sort of big news thing. But it's, boy, it's, uh, I don't know that this Friday is going to get the government or this story off the hook it, it's oh not now monday oh morning it's just monday yeah, morning be a lot of is, gas on this fire <laughs> all, all weekend and whether whether people pay attention on a summer weekend like scott here's the other thing and i know you got to run but i do wonder about the general public how much they truly care about this so maybe on a friday afternoon in the summertime this this has the you the know purpose what? a lot of people 
a lot of people talk about it. Is it important? Is it, you know, no, it's not as important to the average family as putting a roof over your head and feeding your family Correct. and getting through what we're getting through. Obviously, it's not. But on the other hand, it's another notch against this government, which continually shoots itself in the foot. So, you know, is it, is it what's going to bring it to an end? Maybe not, but it certainly adds to the pile. I am amazed by those people who do say, I don't care, or this doesn't affect me, because ultimately the underlying part of this is, if we believe anything that we've heard, we have a foreign government that is trying to affect our democracy. That should be concerning, yeah. whether you... Across whether you, all party lines. Across all... If, look, Scott, honestly, if this had been the other way around, if we had found this out after a conservative party win and found out that a foreign government was trying to help the conservatives win, do you think that the people who right now are saying, I don't really care about this, would be so blasé? Absolutely. And I give you the answer, no. And why? Because the other big story of the day, Donald Trump, what did we hear for four years while he was in office? Russia tried to help him get in. It's the exact story in reverse. Yeah, good point. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator and more on the resignation of David Johnston, the special rapporteur. Scott, have a great one. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks. Does this mean we can't say rapporteur anymore, that our time with rapporteur is up? I don't up? know. I want to use that again. I do. I, think I do, too. I think, he'll, I think David Johnston will always be a rapporteur. He trademark it. He will always have the moniker of rapporteur, unfortunately, for the rest of his life. Have a good uh, weekend. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Jonathan, via email, writes, uh, you know it's going to be a great weekend when you can smell the burgers barbecuing over the wildfires. Stay safe, everyone. Nighty-night. 